Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show where we talk about the stuff we've watched since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. Let's jump right into it. Yeah, we've all got places to be, so let's... Yeah, and it's been a couple weeks. I was out of town. I got work to catch up on. We have have some stuff. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with... uh, the first, uh, the, the thing I'm about to talk about here is the first of two films I saw at this year's Hollywood Film Festival. Oh, look at you. Um, at the Arclight, uh, Arclight Cinemas. I don't know what it's called. <laughs> it's Arclight Arclight Hollywood. Cinemas sounds right to me. Yeah. yeah. Arclight Hollywood. Or mm-hmm. what I think of, to me, when I say, when I hear someone say the Arclight, mm-hmm. I just assume, I assume they're talking about the Hollywood one because I that's the original that well, yeah. one. But my boss, uh, one of my bosses at work, uh, is like a real West Sider. When she says the arc light, she's talking about Manhattan Beach. How many of these things are there? There's one in Pasadena now, right? Yeah, Pasadena, Sherman, Sherman Oaks, Oaks, Manhattan Beach. I feel like there's uh, more. Yeah, I don't like it. I feel like uh, I, I feel like once you start expanding, I feel like the brand's going to be a little bit tarnished. Well, I think it already it was from the beginning, like from the first expansion okay. to Sherman Oaks. Which, um, because that theater already existed exactly. Yeah, the yeah. Arclight Hollywood was they built, and, and it really is. It's still very expensive, but it is a great place to see a movie because those those theaters are yeah. built for a great movie experience. You yeah. know, it, 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 it it's it's perfect. Everything else they've done, they've just like taken over old multiplexes and yeah. like you know changed the paint and stuff. But it's not uh, as ideal as the Arclight. I do feel like uh, Arclight Sherman Oaks. I mean, when I when I go there, I say like they're gonna, you know, kind of dissolve their brand a little bit. But when I feel like Arclight Sherman Oaks is very well branded. When I go in, I do f- feel like I'm at an Arclight. Yeah, not like, the Arclight yeah. though. I don't think I would ever refer to it as the Arclight. Yeah, it's got to be Arclight Sherman Oaks. Exactly. This is oh, this conversation is so uninteresting. It's to been people. a while since P- since we've had this discussion like a pure la movie theater discussion okay uh, but some of our listeners seem to enjoy that um at the very least you know there have been so many uh people that have mentioned visiting los angeles and feeling like they they have to visit the arc light based on what we've said and what other people have said i know that that's kind of how i felt when i moved out here is like i gotta go to the arc light i've been hearing so much about it and uh it's a really good movie theater. <laughs> As it turns out, that's all it yeah. is. It is still very expensive. Yes, it is. Um, I mean, like, especially if it's like date night, like if it's two people and you're, God forbid, you're getting like a, you know, a sausage or a caramel corn. Sure. Or whatever. Um, that shit adds up. Well, quick. that's the thing. I, because I have the movie pass, I really don't go to the Arclight very much cause they don't take it, right. but I do, I will often take screenings that are at the Arclight. Oh yeah. And, I do. Uh, and so that's that uh, you don't have to pay for parking. You don't have to pay for the ticket. You will. I'll pay for like the cheapest popcorn and Coke situation. And, um, yeah, cause I, they do have like a kid's pack. Um, and it's, uh, yeah. makes for a real night. And I, I often get a plus one. So it makes for a real nice date night or just hanging out with a friend. <laughs> All right. So that's our, uh, what, uh, every six months we have to endorse the arc light and then we can talk about the movies we saw. Indeed. So, um, I saw uh, this documentary at Hollywood Film Festival that is one of the films of the year so far for me. Okay. It's astounding. It's called Something Better to Come, directed by Hannah, or probably Hannah Pollock. Okay. Pollock. Uh, it's a Russian uh, documentary. The um, 
there's a landfill just outside of Moscow that is the largest landfill in Europe, and it is home to around a thousand homeless people. Oh my! Um, and the director, uh, Polak, uh, was already sort of involved with some uh, charities, some outreach organizations, trying to get like medical care to these people when she started just filming. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, she's not supposed to do. The landfill is run by the military. <laughs> Russia works differently than, than, than our country. Um, the landfill is run by the military, and they are, there are repeated instances of her being told to shut off the camera, and her like the camera will be at a different angle. All of a sudden, you'll hear her saying, I've shut it off. Yeah. It's off. It's yeah. clear now. But uh, in 2000, she started following this 10-year-old girl. Oh, wow. Um, and... Then and so the movie takes place with this one uh, girl as the protagonist for fourteen years, two thousand to twenty fourteen. Okay, uh, and we just see everything that it, it's. I mean, it, it, her life is almost like you've read The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. I've read part of The Jungle. Okay, well, I've read The Jungle, and essentially, it's like. I don't know that it's a great novel so much as it is just sort of like, here's a survey of all the terrible things that yeah. could potentially happen to immigrants in, in yeah. Chicago and the, the jungle. Or can you believe this shit? <laughs> yeah. Like, but literally it's like one guy and everything happens to him, yeah. but that's, this is real and it's kind of, uh, you know, not everything happens to her, but by, but through her, we see uh, everything from uh, the, alcoholism and um, very early in life pregnancy to rape and to all these things that happen that can happen to these people, you know, uh, friends of hers, you know, die either from not getting enough medical care or often people who are asleep in the landfill get crushed by bulldozers and trucks and stuff. In fact, they, there's an interview with a couple of drivers who are like, that's very jungle esque. Yeah. Uh, and and, I mean, there's a couple of drivers who are like, they're not like laughing about it, but they're also not really feeling guilty about the fact that they have killed people with their bulldozers. It's just like, it's just a fact of life, uh, to them. And, uh, it's what, what's so amazing about it is that, at least for most of its runtime, it never leaves the dump. Mm-hmm. And the dump is such an odd terrain, you know, because yeah. it's not natural. Like they're walking on garbage. Their houses are built out of garbage. There's goals everywhere uh, constantly. And it really does sort of feel, I mentioned this in my review, like in the fact that you have a, you know, a, a teenage, uh, girl as the protagonist for most of it, it almost feels like one of those young adult post-apocalyptic novels, you know, yeah. uh, in that it, it like, you could almost convince yourself like this is happened sometime after the fall of civilization as we know it, but it's not, this is like a real life in a place that is so, so apart from, the world that most of us live in that it almost does seem like another world. Uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And you know, she always like when you, when a documentary picks a documentarian picks a subject, sometimes it's just like, well, they got lucky, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And then there is some of that, like she picked a great person to follow because this person's life, uh, takes on dimensions that she couldn't have foreseen when this girl was 10 yeah. years old, you know, getting where she is when she's 24 at the end of the movie. But you almost feel like when you pick a subject as specific as that, that has such a, 
has such a dramatic life already. Like any development <laughs> right. is a story, right? That's true. It, whether yeah. things get worse or better or stay the same, yeah. there's a story in all all three of those possibilities. Yeah. So it's called something better to come. Sounds uh, good. And it's yeah, it's amazing. sounds uh, harrowing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So my my the first film I want to talk about is also a bit harrowing. It is called Sicario. Oh. By Denis Villeneuve. Den, I'm going to go with Denis, Denis? Villeneuve. That's what I'm going to go with. Denis Villeneuve. Okay. That's what I want to say. Um, However you say it. Uh, I'm I'm a scared of this movie. You're scared? You're a scared? I'm a scared. Okay. To see this movie. Why is that? Because everyone who talks about it says that it's a rough experience. Yes. I, yeah, I don't is. know that it's... And having sat through Prisoners, which I found... Not harrowing, but punishing a lot and with not enough payoff. That's my fear is that like everyone says that Sicario is a real trial. And I feel that I feel I fear that like prisoners, it's not going to be worth it at the end. Uh, it's I think there is a payoff, but I think because of the, the I'm certainly not the person to, first person to say that it is a, a spiritual uh, uh, sequel to traffic. Oh, okay. Um, and it has about as much payoff as traffic does, which when you realize what we're dealing with here, there is no ending mm-hmm. to the thing itself. There are only uh, little triumphs. Um, and so there is an emotional ending and there is a definite clear like, OK, this is a thing that ha- that is that has ended. Uh, and so the payoff is a very uh, frustrating and depressing and harrowing uh-huh. one. Um but I would venture to so I didn't like Enemy that much. I did respond to a lot of the aspects of Prisoners. Um, and I, while I've said before, and I might have said it on this show last week when you weren't here. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, by the way, thanks to Scott and to Terrence. Oh, indeed. Yes, yes. Um, but we should have saved that for the main episode, I guess. Yeah, I have no gratitude for them right now. Okay. Um, my thing with Prisoners is if it were just a detective story... If it were like the Jake Gyllenhaal character story, meaning it's like 40 minutes, at least 40 minutes shorter. Uh, And, you know, and I view it almost like a uh, from a Dennis Lehane standpoint, which is mm -hmm. it is that is the that is kind of the hinge the, the the nail to, to hang all of this other stuff on in this thematic exploration that is at times heavy handed. But I also love what Hugh Jackman is doing so much as an actor that I'm okay with, with deviating from just a standard uh, okay. procedural. But um, so I think because of the, the inherent darkness, like the visual darkness of prisoners and some of the themes explored, I think I might prefer it more than prisoners. I think I might prefer Prisoners more than Sicario. Okay. But I would venture to... I feel like Sicario is probably his best film. I haven't okay. seen... Uh, was it? What did he do before Prisoners? Was that uh, Incendies? Is that him? Oh, yeah. Uh, on on Incendies. Um, I feel like we're now just, just making fun of other languages. Um, but... Uh, I think it is Incendies. Okay. So I haven't seen that, but of his you know English language films... Um, I think Sicario, I think he's definitely making progress as a filmmaker. He has a really strong command of tone when it comes to suspense. I got to say he's hard to beat. I mean, there are moments in Sicario where you are just like, you, you almost feel like you're watching a horror movie. Now he doesn't direct it like that, but it, you are so, you are so aware that threats can come from anywhere. Um, and often do, 
that you're just never at ease ever. Um, because they can come at anywhere at any time from anybody. And that really makes, uh, makes the film really intimidating, honestly, to, to watch and to walk into, um, wonderful performances all around. It's nice to see Benicio del Toro do some really great work and find a a role that suits him very well. Emily Blunt is of course really solid and, and as always, yeah. And just like has a, has a, uh, a good role to play. And I know that there are some people, um, some, uh, I would, I would say some feminist bloggers that have a problem with her story arc. Okay. I think it works. I think it's organic and I think Emily Blunt certainly pulls it off. Whatever, whatever. Well, have, you, my, have, have you checked your privilege? Well, hang on a minute. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. No, no, no noises, please. When I'm checking my privilege, <laughs> I need to kind of center myself. <laughs> Oh shit! There it is. Um, okay, yes, you're right. I'm sorry. The film is remarkably sexist. I apologize. Um, let me uh, let me explain. Oh, let me mansplain how sexist it is. Oh shit! Hang on. Now I'm. You know what? I'll not say anything ever again. Sorry, go. everybody. Um, so, uh, but yeah, and Josh Brolin is is a lot of fun. Probably should have been a trigger warning in there. <laughs> <laughs> well done well done good job everyone we made it so um and one thing and so i will say that this is uh, okay in in a very low level i do have a certain uh, aso- emotional association with sicario because it takes place primarily in juarez juarez is well I w- is where i went on three mission trips and um, i didn't from, realize you were there multiple times yeah three years in a row wow um I don't know if you know or not where I was. It needs some work. Right. And, but it has gotten, so you guys, so, you guys didn't finish up, <laughs> you know, we should have gone that fourth year. I think, right. I think we would have really made a difference, but, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it has gotten so bad that, I mean, I was talking, I was talking to a, an old friend of mine who like follows missions and stuff like that. And he said, Oh yeah, there's no way that we would be allowed to go to war as now. Um, huh certainly as, as like middle schoolers and stuff like that. And so, um, and there's, it gives you such a sense of hopelessness of the situation that like, there is no, there's no winning here. Mm -hmm. And so in that regard, it is like traffic. And I think it probably captures the emotional tone and the, almost the surrealism, the emotional surrealism of what it is to be a part of this thing. Mm -hmm. And as, as evidenced by like, Josh Brolin's character. It's a very, very good movie. Technically, uh, dramatically, thematically. I think, I think you should see it. I should see it. Okay. All right. You have reason to be a scared, (laughs) but, uh, but I think you would, I think you would like it quite a bit. All right. Um, next movie for me, the, the other film I saw at Hollywood film festival, another documentary. And this one actually has a, uh, theatrical, at least for Los Angeles and New York has theatrical release dates in November. It's directed by Alexandria Bomback, not, any relation uh, mm. to Noah, not even spelled that way, and Mo Scarpelli. Those are the those are the directors. It's called Frame by Frame, and it uh, takes as its subject uh, people who live in Afghanistan and take pictures, like professional. Okay, um, which might seem kind of mundane or low stakes, but under the Taliban, photography was banned. Taking a picture was a crime under yeah. the Taliban. And so do you think when they declare it, they say photography is Taliban? I don't think they do. I feel like I think of like transcription issues. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got it. I got uh, it. If I were a member of the Taliban, I would look for opportunities like that. Right. Cause um, I banning things a lot 
It's like, here we go. I'm going to give these people a little bit of joy before I ruin their lives. Uh, so anyway, you've got these people Sorry. who take pictures um, and, uh, and they're sort of re-educating this nation mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, you know, uh, in terms of photography and how vital that can be. One, one person who, who's actually a photography teacher uh, talks about without photographs, uh, a, a society or a culture doesn't have an identity because mm-hmm. um, it's almost like a proof that you uh, yeah. exist. Um, and so, uh, so you've got like, so it's a bunch of people and they all, they all know each other because um, it's a small group, but uh, they're not all connected. It's just a bunch of different people, except for two of them are connected because they are married. Um, and that leads to interesting things because that he, um, the man in the marriage uh, won a Pulitzer for a photograph he took because he was, photographing a festival mm. and uh, a bomb went off and so he took photos of the aftermath he had he was in the i mean it's uh wrong to put it this way but he was in the right place at the right time right and took some incredibly uh we'll come back to that word harrowing um and sobering photos of the aftermath of this bombing and won a pulitzer for it she on the other hand is a photographer uh, works as a, photo, as a freelance photojournalist um taking pictures of women in afghanistan which is even among like even though photography is legal now and there's men practicing it men can't take pictures of women interesting in, in afghanistan so she and even like her doing it is discouraged because they yeah. don't want pictures of women getting out there um uh there's there's one scene and then i'll wrap this up but one scene that kind of uh uh, and, and I, I uh, singled this out in my review as well, but it kind of exemplifies what the movie, the overview of Afghanistan that the movie is giving, where she travels to uh, a town where there has there have been, and uh, this you can read about in the news, there uh, there have been an increase in recent years in women setting fire to themselves in Afghanistan, oh either either as a means of suicide or as a means of permanent disfigurement because uh, they they have no other way out. They're like, you know, in arranged marriages or something, or they're in situations where there's literally no way out. So they commit suicide by burning themselves or, um, make themselves quote unquote undesirable, I guess by burning themselves. Oh boy. And so she goes to this hospital in this city, the city of Herat. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, with the intention of photographing these women who, cause the, this is the area where it's had the, where it's had, where it's happened a lot. And they have a, you know, the burn wing has a sort of, um, su- you know, sub wing specifically for self immolation because mm-hmm. it's such a thing. And wow. So she's talking with this doctor who's telling her in polite terms that she can't take pictures of these women, uh, which is what she's come, you know, flown from, uh, Kabul to do. Uh, and he's, he's not saying it for like, that he's morally or religiously opposed to it. Right. He's saying my job here is to take care of these people. Yeah. If you take pictures of these women, you're not just risking yourself. You're risking them. You're risking right. me. You're risking this building and everything that it accomplishes and everything, everyone that's in it or, you know, whether working or they're to be cared for. And he's like, it, it, it's just like this reminder that like, yeah, under underneath the, the, you know, fundamentalist uh tyranny that that ran afghanistan for so long Mm -hmm. 
they're they're regular people. They're they have more in common with us than not in common with sure. us. And there's you know there's another part of that same woman is flipping through a book, uh, uh, like a coffee table book called Afghanistan Before the Taliban, mm-hmm. and you realize like oh in the 1970s this was not that different from any other like yeah. uh, you know city in the 1970s. You see there's a picture of three women walking. Um, presumably to, it looks like they're walking to a class because they're carrying books right there. That's something that can't happen. And they're just wearing like very seventies, like skirt, like skirt suits, you know, and laughing with each other with their hair completely exposed. It's like a normal thing. And, uh, this, this doctor who's like, he's obstructing her in doing what she wants to do, but he's coming from a place of that is 100% understandable. And I think the the movie is really good at, at giving us an overview of what, um, uh, what Afghanistan is really like, I think day to day. Well, and that, and that dilemma speaks to this, the, the problem of, you know, the problem uh, this is going to sound weird. The problem of the do-gooder, which is, you know, like I want to help these people and maybe the best way to do that is to get these images out there so that we all know what we're dealing with and maybe other maybe people with more power can put a stop to it so I maybe I'll maybe I'll release these maybe I'll take these photos and release them for the greater good so right. I can prevent this from happening in the future but in doing so it condemns everybody in the present. Right. You know, yeah. and it's just like how do you even make that choice? Yeah, but I mean you see that these people like uh, are photo journalists, which means not just photographers, they are mm-hmm. journalists and they really do have a commitment to yeah. information and truth getting out there. There's and, and you realize that people who have lived under the Taliban for a long time, even that even those concepts are not right. don't immediately come to them because there's a there's a guy who goes to um to photograph people uh in villages registering to vote for the first time. Mm-hmm. And he can't find anyone who's doing it. And so a woman who's, who works there is like, well, I could just fill one of these out. You could take a picture of me and I could say, you know, you could make it look like I'm a person who registered. And he's yeah. like, no, I'm a, I'm a journalist. Like I, I can, I'm only photographing things that are yeah. real. But like this woman is trying to help, you know, she doesn't think there's anything wrong yeah. with that because, uh, that's the, the idea of journalism, like real journalism, um, is probably not that you know probably got disestablished along with uh yeah. with photography it's a really fascinating movie just it's, embrace some nanook of the north stuff you know <laughs> and uh, get to a deeper uh, truth you know yeah yeah uh so yeah that's um frame by frame and it's opening uh in los angeles and new york in november hopefully elsewhere soon or maybe on vod or something it's really good so so far we've been talking about very harrowing films yeah uh, i'm going to change the pace up a little bit all right here we go uh so i was uh, in denver visiting uh friends and my brother and a couple of listeners in fact um and so the movies that i wound up watching while i was there it was all it was all rewatches and the first one was Christopher Guest's Best in Show, which I have not seen in a long time. I've seen it many times. I have also seen it many times, and I've probably seen it more recently. Well, you've obviously seen it more recently than I have now, but I had seen it more recently uh, because it's also one of my wife's favorite movies. It's one of our favorite movies together. And I will say it has taken me a it has taken me a long time because I'm the guy who like with bands I'm always like they were better earlier. Like that's always where I go, and so it's taken me a long time to realize that best in show is better than waiting for Guffman. Uh, it's it. You know what? Like, I don't think I, I don't think, I don't think you even have to say it. Yeah. And not, not in the sense that like, Oh, it's such a truth, but it's just like, 
Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, A Mighty Wind. Let's just put them all together. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because they do, they, they provide such an odd portrait of a specific thing. Like, if you've done Missouri Community Theater, which I have, uh-huh. <laughs> Waiting for Guffman <laughs> has a certain quality to it. Yeah. But then the music in A Mighty Wind is so damn great but then also can be very funny. And then there's the world of like dog breeders and stuff. Uh, and it's just such, each one is so unique, but they all, it almost, it's like a trilogy, you know? Um, and obviously there was, you know, this is spinal tap before that, that probably influenced all of this. But, um, I don't know. I, I feel like it's okay to say, if someone says, Hey, uh, I think a mighty wind is the best one, or I think best in show is about, I don't, I have no problem. I would never argue with someone. Yeah. I would, I would simply say, well, such and such is my favorite. And I think a mighty win might be my okay. favorite. Although best in show is like, it's uh, best the, in show. Is one of, oh, go ahead. The music in a mighty win goes a long way for okay. me in making it as good as, as I think it is. But I think as far as sheer laughs, best in show is pr- pretty good. Pretty yeah. hard to beat. She looks like a cocktail waitress on an oil rig. That's <laughs> Um, <laughs> Uh, but that's a like best in shows movie. My wife and I love so much that we like quote it in conversation without like even realizing that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, uh, what did she say? Like Parker Posey is like, don't look at that man. You look at me. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, the one, uh, that Christopher guest says when Jane Lynch is like, I'm so-and-so's trainer, but you probably knew that, you know that he's like, I do when I don't, uh, I do when I don't. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, we tend we tend to say I do and I don't to each other a lot. This this time around, um, I, I I paid probably closer attention to Michael McKeon and John Michael Higgins <laughs> characters, who I think if the film, I think the film, you know, people have talked about Christopher Guest like potent, possibly hating his characters. Uh-huh. Uh, I feel like while those characters are rather stereotypical in some ways. Um, they do have a genuine affection for each other. Yeah. And I feel like the film probably has a certain degree of affection for them, but there's still humor to be found in certain aspects of them. John Michael Higgins, especially when they're packing for the trip <laughs> and, and he's just, and he's like, you know, putting stuff in the, in the, uh, suitcase. And Michael McKeon is like, he goes, okay, now, so that's, that's seven kimonos. <laughs> And he says, and he goes, yeah. And he's like, and we're going to be in Philadelphia for 48 hours. And then John Michael Higgins is like, right. Okay. So here's eight. Um, <laughs> it's just, it's such a man, like the time when, when the people, I mean, that's the nature of, of all of his films. Like the ensemble works so well together that they are so in sync that, you know, I totally buy. And if, if any of the, if, if he ever, uh, puts characters together that are a couple and have been a couple uh-huh. for a long time, whether it be Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara or Michael McKeon and John Michael Higgins, like the chemistry is so there, yeah. even if they're fighting or whatever, I believe it 100%. Um, and of course, and then I always Fred will Fred Willard always takes me by surprise <laughs> Cause you're going along and you're getting to know, like he, he winds up being like this little shot in the arm that you didn't know you needed. And you don't really, you're cause you're, you, these characters are funny enough. Then he comes along with his horrendous commentary and you're just like, this is <laughs> like, it seems supernatural what he is able to come up with. Hey, well, what's amazing to me is that it is that it's supernatural outlandish, but it's also, 
in a way really grounded in human because I feel like this, that the idea of the funny color commentary guy yeah. is like almost a stock character. Yeah. Um, but he makes him so real. Like, I feel like yeah. you get to know him a little bit, and, you know? Yeah. And he's trying to make this work, <laughs> Yes, you know, yes. like he'll ask actual questions. Like, now let me ask you this. Why do they have him run away and then run back? Like he's asking, what all of us might be asking. Yeah. Although if you were watching this show, you know why they're doing that, but you got to fill the time if, if, if nothing else. Yeah. To me, the, the, the part that gets me the most is cause he's, he's asking silly questions, but they're still on topic. And he's like, he goes, he goes now, Trevor, let me ask you this. It's a little off topic. How much weight do you think I can bench press? <laughs> and just, man, I can't, uh, I can't get over it, but I, uh, it's such a wonderful, I'm sure everyone has seen it at this point, yeah, but it's, man, it's a wonderful We could talk film. about how great it is all day. Yeah. I think it's the performance of Parker Posey's career. Personally, <laughs> I think it's amazing what she's doing. Well, she and Michael Hitchcock, I think I was paying attention to them more this time as well. And just what they're able to do. Um, oh, I wouldn't need to pay attention to them. They are. <laughs> well, <laughs> to, they me, for, to me, for some reason, they're like, they're not the lifeblood because maybe it's because, because I don't agree that my, that Christopher Guest hates his characters, right. but you can make the argument with them. Sure. They're like, they're the ones who are there just to like, they're they're just to be mocked. I think. Yeah, kind of. Especially and, when he's when he's like holding the dog and looking at it, he's like he's like, don't look at all those fat ass losers and freaks. You look at me. <laughs> <laughs> and they both have braces and just like. But Parker Posey, when she's when she's uh, yelling at uh, Ed Begley Jr. because I can't find the busy bee, and she's like, he goes, "Well, there's a pet store downside." She's like, "Oh, that's great. What are you a genius?" And then she leaves. She's like, "She's like, thanks a lot, you stupid hotel manager." Oh, hard to beat, listeners. Uh, we've here's the thing. We've already said a lot of punchlines. We're, we're just scratching the surface. I haven't even talked about uh, the brilliance of Eugene Levy. It's yeah. or and and Larry Miller's wonderful uh, little section in there. Oh boy, yeah, <laughs> like they were spring loaded. Uh, <laughs> Pops off like a grape. Uh, it's good All stuff. Right. So right. we can move on. Let's move on to something I've dread- dreading talking about. My least favorite film of the year. I'm so excited. I'm so excited because <laughs> when I saw this trailer, because you told me the, the the other day, when I saw this trailer, I, I my initial thought was like, oh boy, that doesn't look that great. I, I I don't think I like it. And I did not, but I didn't expect it to be this. Uh, and you know, uh, other people might disagree. I, mean, I think it's doing okay on like Rotten Tomatoes, but uh, this movie is James Vanderbilt's Truth. Which now, what the, else has James Vanderbilt I, directed? I don't know. Okay, um, I'm sorry. I, I can I, I can look it up if uh, if that's important to you. This is his first directorial. Credit. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, he's been a writer for some time. Okay, because I feel like I've seen that name before, but uh, I'm sorry. He I wrote the classic John McTiernan uh, film Basic from 2003. Um, anyway, he wrote the Rundown. That's a good one. Oh, I like that one. Oh, he, he's best known for Zodiac. He's one of the screenwriters. Of Zodiac. Oh, okay, there it is. Okay, um, so Truth is for those who don't know it's the uh story uh behind the story um that lost dan rather his job at cbs news uh and a bunch of other people too um including um now i'm forgetting her name <laughs> martha mapes is oh, that her gosh, name? i don't know what is her name it, she's like the real kate blanchett's character is the real star of the film yes i don't recall um and i don't know why uh that is uh, escaping me and it's uh yeah mary mapes um it's a 
it's a great idea for a story. They, for those who don't remember or were too young, I guess, um, uh, Six, Dan Rather on 60 Minutes presented proof that, um, uh, proof in quotes here, that uh, George W. Bush's National Guard records had been, uh, what, forged or doctored mm-hmm. or something. Uh, and then it was almost immediately uh, people were like, these aren't real and made a pretty good case that they weren't real. Yeah. Uh, although th- this movie never comes out and admits that they're not real. Um but uh, I guess that was never conclusive, you know, conclusively proven. So fine. Whatever. Yeah. Um, at the very and, least there's a, there's a lot of reasonable doubt if nothing uh, else. There's a lot <laughs> more like even the movie doesn't seem to realize how good a case it's making <laughs> that they got fooled. Um, and that's part of the problem is that, uh, the, the movie is pretending at being, uh, transparent, and right. warts and all and stuff. But really what it's doing is it's doing this distraction thing. It's saying, look how open we're being. Don't pay attention to all this stuff over here. Um, or, or, or it's sort of like, uh, uh, what's the word like bolstering? Uh, it's, that's not the word I'm looking for. Um, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, anyway, say the rest it, of the sentence. It, Let me see if it, I can help out. It's building up, building a foundation under its case okay. by spending the first almost half of the movie, like really getting you on the anti George W. Bush <laughs> side, right. really saying, you know, before this idea of these things, um, these, these documents comes up, uh, comes up. Um, there's, you've got Dennis Quaid's character just, uh, giving just giving speeches about how because he, he you know he went to Vietnam and that you know uh, like making it clear that which is which is true the the fact that if you didn't have this part with the doctored documents mm-hmm. what they did have was a pretty good case that George W. Bush had strings pulled for him to make sure he got into the national guard and avoided the draft. Sure. They did have they you know, not, they don't have proof there. They had a good case on that. Um, and that's kind of how they, I mean, uh, the, this is where the movie, where the movie pisses me off a lot is that by the end, it's sort of saying, uh, and this is in the trailer you were talking about, mm-hmm. oh, everyone's arguing about fonts or, you know, everyone's making this about something. It's not, uh, it's about this. And it's like, well, no, you're being disingenuous right now. You are the one who steered into that. You are the ones yeah. who made it about this other thing. When you had a good case, uh, you know, you, you, you had something here, uh, that would, that would have been a, a good news story. And still, it, it, I mean, it's still in the, the, sure. the story as it aired that stuff about, um, the, uh, then governor, then Lieutenant governor, uh, pulling strings. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe yeah, I can't remember who it is. Um, you had that stuff and then, but you can't then dump all this other stuff. And then when people start pointing out that other stuff, pretend like this wasn't your point all along. Yeah, the details it, matter when they're building up your case, but when someone uses those same details right. to and, and so destroy this is it. where the movie yeah. pisses me off uh, a lot because it's, it's so obvious in its, in what it's trying to do in the first half. You can feel the, it's like, it's like <laughs> uh, when someone is asking you a favor, but they spend like, 
two or three minutes first giving you all the backstory about like sure. like their sob story or whatever you know yeah, yeah. before they get to the favor it's like i know what you're building towards just get to it but that's what it's doing it spends like yeah. 45 minutes sort of saying look i know that look at this look at the you know the, there's, there's a lot going on here um and so it ends up in you know kate blanchett's like uh speech you know uh monologue at the end where she's talking about um something that is in the abstract, something I very much believe that, um, this, that there is, uh, when people, uh, are politically opposed to a news story or a development, they start, um, picking away at details here and there to try and discredit it as opposed to talking about what it's actually about. And that's in the abstract. That's a really good point that I think is something that we should, uh, think about. Um, but in the specific, that's not what they're doing. They are, they, uh, these people are tearing apart what you actually, they are tearing apart the substance of your argument. Yeah. Uh, and I, I just found myself feeling so, uh, not even, I, I already used the word disingenuous. Uh, I, I felt disrespected by the movie. I felt mm. like it didn't respect my intelligence and my um, capacity for objective thought. Yeah. And it had an opportunity to make a really interesting story about why people who, even when they believe they're being above board are allowing, you know, it's essentially about confirmation bias, yeah. um, which is a really interesting uh, topic. But, um, it, it did not choose to, uh, to to treat it like that. Let, let me ask you this: This is the this is the big thing that I took away because when I first heard of the film, I was excited because uh, years ago I was working as an intern at uh, a production company, and one of my jobs was to look at look in the newspaper at recently published books and see right. if they would make good movies. And I believe at the time there was a book written. I. Uh, or maybe there was a, an article in the newspaper about Dan Rather. This is 2007, um, so it was only a few years away from this. Um, about Dan Rather uh, trying to kind of kind of change the way people saw his legacy, and especially at the end and that sort of thing. And so as I read it, I, as I was reading through it, I was like, I thought this might be an interesting movie because the way I saw it, it's the opposite of all the president's men, where these little journalists bring down a big president whereas and and how exciting that is and how like it, it's it's like one of the biggest triumphs of journalism in world history and that there's an argument that maybe journalists are so eager to re- recreate that and be a part of that for themselves and also maybe they have their own biases as well that maybe they they do something kind of shoddily or something like that. And so I was, I thought like, that's, that's an interesting story. Um, and so when I, when I heard the truth was being made, I thought, Oh, someone made a movie of this story. How interesting. Then when I saw that trailer, my first question, and I still do not have an answer. I don't blame you on this. Okay. Why was this movie made? (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, I think unless Dan Rather's like an executive producer. Well, Mary Mapes is. Ah, it's okay. The, the source material for this movie is her memoir about this. Okay. That she wrote. 
and she, and and she is uh i think an executive producer or something okay. on, on the movie so it almost is 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 a vindication like obviously she well, wrote this book as a yeah. way of vindicating like where she came from in a way i actually feel and this is one thing maybe i do respect her with i honestly do feel that her goal in the movie's goal is more to restore the reputation of Dan Rather and is willing at times to make her look bad. Oh, okay. Uh, to insulate Dan Rather from certain things, That's but also never like treating him with kid gloves. Also realizing like, no, he, you know, he wasn't kept in the dark about this. Sure. Stuff. He, he, he made some decisions as, as well, but there are some things he was maybe never told about. Uh, and, and so I think if the movie has a goal, it's to, uh, to, to make Dan Rather seem uh, more trustworthy again. That's interesting. How would you, if you were to watch, obviously you would say that the insider is a better movie, but, um, (laughs) but in both cases you have a very visible journalist, Dan Rather, Mike Wallace, Mm -hmm. uh, and a very respected news program that gets involved in this thing. That's, that's bigger than it. And in one case, it's just like they they fall for something. In another case, they buckle. Um, do you feel like this might be, well, obviously not because you said it. it's your least favorite movie of the year. <laughs> yeah. But like, do you feel like those might be interesting companion pieces? Yeah, I guess so. Um, and uh, Robert Redford's perfectly fine as okay. um, as Dan Rather. It's not as good a performance as uh, was Christopher, Christopher Plummer. Plummer. Yeah. Um, but it's only all oh, that's partially because it's just not, the material's not there. Right. Um, but he does a he does a good job of you know he doesn't Robert Redford doesn't really look like Dan Rather, right? Um, right. But he does a good job of okay. being him. Uh, but yeah, the movie wants to make him kind of a superhero. I'm, well, I I still want to see it, and this- I I almost want to like because I know you are a person who seeks out things that make you mad sometimes, and I always like chastise you for that. And I I kind of want to warn you like. I don't think you need to see this. I think it might ruin your day. Well, it's just, it's one of those things that like, I'm curious and, and I don't want to be somebody who only sees the stuff that I agree with, you know? Um, yeah. And honestly, I kind of have this feeling that like if somebody whose taste I trust like you, if they say that a movie is either the best, their favorite of the year or their least favorite, I feel like I have to see it one way or another. Okay. By the way, you should here, you go watch war room. I'll go watch oh, okay. truth. Okay. You know, basically here's what it is. I'll go watch the movie that you, that should have been for you. Uh-huh. You go watch the movie that should have been for me and that we both rejected outright. Right. Um, so fascinating. I'm excited. All right. All right. Next for me is, uh, I don't have a lot to say um, about this because I just did a whole episode about it on more than one lesson. Uh, but that's actually not why I watched it. I rewatched Rodney Asher's The Nightmare. It is now my third time watching it. Um, it is a bit. It is available on Netflix. Everybody, seek it out. It's very good. It's a perfect time of year to watch it. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I didn't actually watch it so that I could do the episode about it. I, I already felt like I could. Um, uh, but a friend of mine in Denver. Uh, said it sounded interesting so we watched it and uh, it's just as yeah i'm gonna sum this up super quick okay. uh it's just as creepy as it always was uh it rewards multiple viewings just as room 237 does because you'll always notice little subtle things because they're interviewing multiple subjects um you will look at an overall you'll get an overall picture of what they're talking about but i think this time what i got 
was the film is so empathetic towards the people that are talking, Mm -hmm. towards the idea of sleep paralysis because so few people have dealt with it that those who haven't probably hear those who haven't and think, well, I'm sure it's just a regular nightmare. Like, it, it, you know, and it sucks that they're having nightmares every night, but, I mean, it can't be as big a deal as it is. So by having these recreations, it's saying, like, hey, isn't this terrifying? Imagine it every night, asshole. Um, Right. I don't know why it's so defiant. That's that's my own interpretation. But do you ever read about a similar thing like that, like uh, phantom limb thing, like where people can oh, still, yes. like sense, like people talk about it, like it's almost like a curious, like oh, did you know? Sometimes people still feel their yeah. limbs, but if you read about it, it's actually like a serious thing, and it's like really painful. Yeah, which it sounds terrifying. Yeah, and because your your brain is telling you to move your leg because otherwise it's going to cramp up and the muscles are going to atrophy because your brain somehow doesn't know that you don't yeah. have a leg, and so it's sending these pain signals saying move your leg, uh, and Damn. it's not there. It sounds horrifying. That's re- that's ugh, that's awful, and it just and I f- I almost feel like there's a documentary to be made about that. Yeah, and just like, but but the other thing that I got the third time is not only does it try to empathize as far as the visions uh, that these people are seeing, but I think it's also trying to emulate in in the way the 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 film is told. I, I would say the story unfolds is not so much that, but like. I feel like it's trying to emulate what it is to have sleep paralysis, which is to say you have it, you don't know what it is. So you start looking into it, you find out what it is. Then you try to find out what can I do about it? Realize the answer is nothing. Then you try to figure out, okay, well how can I cope with it? Mm -hmm. Realize that there's only so much you can do. And then like there's an, there's a discovery process to the film that I think is probably probably mirrors a person's discovery process as they're experiencing this, um, in their lives. And so, uh, so that's something I got the third time around and it's just a really great movie. It's currently in my top 10, um, of the year. And I just, I really respond to the way Rodney makes movies. And if you want to hear a much more in depth discussion of it, you can go to more than one lesson. All right. Next up for me, I won't talk too much about this one. Uh, it's called drunk stoned, brilliant dead. The story of the national lampoon. Hmm. Um, and it's a very lively documentary uh, with a lot of interviews with fun people, the people who uh, wrote the National Lampoon magazine, uh, those who are still around, and uh, a lot of uh, you know stars who were in National Lampoon Radio Hour or uh, in National Lampoon movies like um, Chevy Chase and uh, Kevin Bacon. <laughs> I say I say fun. Chevy Chase actually is <laughs> a fun a fun presence in this movie, and okay. eventually also a really touching one. When he talks about Doug Kenny, one of the hmm. founders of National Lampoon, um, died in Hawaii in 1980. Uh, and he was Chevy Chase's best friend at that hmm. point. And so, yeah, that's actually one of the more touching parts of the movie. And then you've also got just like, uh, famous people who are fans or grew up being fans like Billy Bob Thornton and John, John Goodman are interviewed. They have nothing to do with <laughs> national Lampoon, but they're like, yeah, they're just interviewed as fans. And so it's, it's lively. You get a lot of funny people, but it's really superficial. And, mm. um, it seems to like, the National Lampoon was a lot of things. One of the things that it was, was to me, I could, uh, in my review, I made this comparison like an early, uh, South park in that it had very strong points to make and it made them by being offensive yeah. in ways that are not cheap or easy. Like 
ways that like it, it was offensive in ways that you would have to be smart to come up with something this kind of offensive. Um, and I find that, uh, and I, that's when I look at uh, old stuff from the national lampoon, uh, in the 1970s, that's the stuff that, um, that really speaks to me. But when, and when the first movie animal house came out and it was about these, like just, you know, drunk college bros, you know, partying and being raucous or whatever that sort of changed, I think what the public perceives national lampoon to be. That's what I thought, uh, you know, for years, that's what I thought when I heard that name, because of course I grew up in the age of national lampoons, Van Wilder, like senior trip or whatever, all those, all those things. Uh, um, and the movie seems to be okay with steering toward that. It's, I swear national lampoon, the magazine had, it very often featured topless women. And mm-hmm. I swear this movie uses every image of a topless woman that ever appeared in national lampoon. It's constant. And it's, that's the kind of tone that they're going for, unfortunately, and not really getting into, um, how, uh, smart and outrageous it was in a, in a political sense. And often from both sides of the, uh, of the aisle, which is something that's very, uh, mm-hmm. uh, interesting, uh, to me because, um, PJ O'Rourke um, yeah. is was one of the early, uh, or at least one of the 1970s writers um, of National Lampoon, which I didn't realize. I only looked this up after because the movie doesn't go into this. National Lampoon still existed until 1998, um, hmm. but at that point, it was only putting out an issue a year. Oh wow! <laughs> the movie essentially goes from. 66, 67, when uh, the founders are in, in Harvard and working for the writing for the Harvard Lampoon until the early 80s, shortly after Doug Kenny's death. That's the like sort of 15 years that it covers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know if you, you know, if it, if it ever comes up on Netflix or whatever, it's it, there are definitely worse ways to spend uh, 105 minutes or however long it is. But uh, I, I found myself kind of disappointed. Like when it was over, I, like I was probably smiling a lot watching it. And when it was over, it was like this sort of deflating, like uh, it's ephemeral, I guess it's, it, that's it, how I felt about that Orson Welles documentary last right. year, which is just like, you know, you have all these people and you have such a great subject and this is what you decided to do with it. Right. So like, basically just have the most cursory celebration of what it did with no understanding of just exactly what it did um, and how important it was. Like that sounds very frustrating. That's a bummer. Um, okay. So next for me, I'm not going to say much about this cause I was, ta- I talked, I, this is my second time seeing mission impossible rogue nation. Okay. I saw it with my nephew and um, he enjoyed it tremendously. Uh, it's still in some theaters. If you haven't seen it, seek it out. David, have you, have you seen it? I forget. No, uh, I think you would enjoy it quite okay. a bit. Okay. Um, and, uh, I didn't really come away with thinking anything different than I thought the first time, which was, um, what I admire about it is that it doesn't, you know, it leaves it all on the field. I guess you could say where it's just like, they do not, if they have an action sequence, mm-hmm. they are going to explore every element of that sequence. I love they want to see like, there's a, there's this, there's this uh, sequence that takes place where there's a, a possible assassination at an opera house while an, op- while an opera is going on. So think of all the elements that you could... I think you talked about this on the movie yeah, the last time. All the elements you could have during that. You know, catwalks and like somebody hiding in the actual set and that sort of thing. Um, chases and ropes and, you know, 
a knife fight and just like there's so much going on. And when you think about it, I feel like a lesser movie would have just got in, got out, had a few like, you know, a a few cursory fights, but that's basically it. Um, But this one, it leaves no stone unturned. And I think there's a certain pleasure in that, you know, Uh, it's very meticulous. And I think that's that comes down to Christopher, Christopher McQuarrie, who I think enjoys sort of deconstructing and reconstructing genre yeah. films and yeah. genre elements. Yeah, he he made The Way of the Gun, which features the slowest car chase exactly. of all time. Exactly. And it's uh, still somehow thrilling. Like, it's an incredibly yeah. tense car chase in which they're literally just rolling down an alley in neutral. <laughs> yeah, and in that way, like that opera sequence, it's just like, it's like, look at all these fights. But everyone's being very quiet, you know, like, they're respecting the opera <laughs> that does. Seem, and also they don't want to draw attention to themselves. But I, as a theater guy, right. I, I was just like, I was like, well, look, you do what you got to do, but the show must go on. <laughs> so, um, we can move on. Okay. Moving on to, uh, the next thing I saw, which is a fantastic little, uh, um, I guess yeah, I, I, it's a thriller, it's like a home invasion thriller. Okay. But it's um an artsy one. Oh, okay. But it still works in that sense. It's called The Keeping Room. And it is about three women played by um uh Britt Marling, Haley Stanfield, and now I forget the woman's name who plays the slave, uh, because it takes place in eighteen sixty five in the South the American oh, South. Okay. It doesn't say uh, it, it's not clear about the 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 state. Um I'm I'm gonna guess it's in Georgia, but it was shot in like Romania. So okay. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It's interesting. Um, um, so it's three women who it's at the end of the civil war in the South. These three women live on this home because the men are either dead or off fighting right. the war. And that's kind of true of their whole like area seems kind of depleted. There aren't very many people and there right. especially aren't very many men around. Um, and, uh, then, two men to Northern soldier union soldiers. Um, one of them played by, uh, Sam Worthington. Oh, okay. Uh, show up in town. Um, in the, there's some for a movie that's very, uh, uh I, I always feel like I have to call out when I'm repeating myself for my review, but I think it gets old. Uh, I'm just going to do it. These are my thoughts. They're still my thoughts, whether I wrote them already. Or not. Yeah. I can still say them. Um, for a movie that is, uh, so lean in terms of runtime and settings and even cast, it actually rocks, racks up quite a body count. Uh, so these guys come into town and there's some pretty upsetting violence, uh, carried out by, by them. Um, because there's like no one to oppose them, you know, uh, in the, in this town and they get wind of the fact that there's three women living in this secluded house. Mm -hmm. And so they head on out there. And so the movie is, three women protecting themselves from these two, uh, drunken soldiers. Yeah. Um, and it's, if, you know, if you don't have patience for a movie that sometimes gets a little, uh, meditative and, (laughs) and artsy and drawn out and, uh, and and stuff, then you might, if you're just looking for assault on precinct 13, it's not going to, you're not going to get that. Um, but you know, there are some elements of that, but, uh, I was just listening to that theme the other day at the oh, yeah? gym. Oh yeah. That's a I good felt one. kick ass. Um, but, uh, it's, it, it, it's, it, it still works as a thriller while also being sort of, uh, quiet and 
pensive and introspective. That sounds uh, great. I, I feel like I, I would I, enjoy I, it a lot. I loved it. Um, okay. It's awesome. rolling out. Uh, it's, I think it already opened in Los Angeles and might have already closed cause it, uh, I don't think it did that well, but it's rolling out in theaters. Um, almost it's the kind of movie that if it's not on VOD now, it almost certainly will <laughs> yeah, be. Yeah. It's that kind of movie. So check it out. It's called the keeping room and it's directed by Daniel Barber who made, um, what was the Michael Caine uh, gangster movie a couple years ago? Harry Brown, is that Harry what it's Brown. called? That's the yeah, one. which I didn't see, but it's pretty good. He made that. Okay. Um, all right. So my last movie is uh, my new favorite movie of the year. My last movie is my new favorite movie. What? When we get to it, best friend. <laughs> um, and I gotta say, it's not a perfect film. I didn't have much expectation for it, and that is Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs. I'm so excited that uh, I, that you liked this. I did. I, like, I went in just being like, okay. I went with a friend of the show, Jason Egan. Here's the conversation we were having before. Uh-huh. Now he didn't. He didn't really like it as much as I did. Really, uh, I, nobody seems to. Um, hmm. My reasons for liking it, uh, I'll get into a little bit later. But I don't want to spoil it for our end of the year stuff. Right. Um, but uh, so when you say a little bit later, you mean like four or five months from now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were saying, do we really need another Steve Jobs movie? We oh. had Pirates of Silicon Valley. We had Jobs. We have a new documentary. We even have a parody movie. Uh-huh. I, uh, I Steve, I believe, right? Is that what it's called? Uh, yeah. Which I've seen, and it's not that funny. But um, well, because they like made it in like a week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It has its moments, but it's... It, it I never like, watched it, but it, like... I feel like they could have developed it more comedically. Yeah, I feel like that thing, whatever it was called, I, Steve, or whatever, yeah. was more about, like, can you believe we did this? We yes. Made a, we made a feature-length, funny-or-die parody of a biopic in an incredibly short time. And that, to me, that's the... That's that's its reason. Uh, it's, it's a raison d'etre. Ooh. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I guess I guess that's that's uh, a way of looking at it, which is like, hey, this is like a bunch of pals getting together and being like, can you believe this shit? Um, yeah, so I was just thinking like, all right, this is going to be. It's a story that doesn't need to be told because, A, it's been told a million times and B, Steve Jobs is a lot higher profile than Mark Zuckerberg was five years ago. Like people like he was very, he was very much the front man of a huge company. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Mark Zuckerberg, while he was the name, but I, I couldn't have told you what he looked like or anything about him. And so I just thought like what it's going to be, it's probably going to be a cut rate, uh, social network telling me things that I either already know or, maybe don't care that much about. And if I want to know, I can go any number of other places. Okay. That's how I went in. Uh So maybe because my expectations were low, maybe (laughs) by exceeding them as much as it did, maybe that's why I like it so much, but I don't think that's the case. Um, first off, and I don't even want to, I don't even want to say it because I don't want to spoil it. Okay. The story structure is so far. It is not at all what I thought it was going to be. Um, Okay. It's and maybe you've heard a little bit. I know. About yeah, it. I know what the structure is. Uh, I thankfully didn't know because by the time it becomes clear exactly what how this story is going to be told, you know, you're about twenty five to thirty minutes in, and you realize like, oh, this is it. 
And that to me is exciting because it's not conventional. It, it plays into a thing that I I've said many times, we, we have both said many times on here, which is the best kind of biopic is the one where you pick, you don't try to cover the person's entire life. You pick right. maybe a three year span or maybe even a, a, a day who's, yeah. who's to say, and you cover that as like the high point or the, 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 the essential moment of their life. This goes with this, does that, but more. And it's so the structure blew me away. I think in some cases, it's some of the best writing Aaron Sorkin has ever done. An argument could be made that he tells a lot more than he shows, which I could see that. But he's writing, he always writes intelligent characters well. And it, at times, it's a little bit too bantery. Uh, I could see, I can definitely see that. But at the same time, Michael Fassbender does such a good job of making the character seem like an insufferable last word asshole <laughs> that his little quips at the end of every conversation, it comes, it seems less like, haha, what a, what a delightful person and more like, ugh, what an asshole. <laughs> so I'll talk about two more things before I, okay. I move and on. your review is going up tonight. Yes. Okay. Um, so I'm uh, just saying, I wasn't like trying to be the cigar chopping editor. <laughs> I was saying for the listener, you can check out Tyler's I've review. I've been wanting to write about it for the last two days. And I, can't uh-huh do you know what i mean like i wish i had seen it a couple weeks ago so that i had time to digest it well it's maybe hard. next year we'll go to tell you right maybe let's give it a uh, uh the uh, commentary is available uh, 10 bucks um <laughs> oh yeah we haven't announced that yet well there's uh, there are other ones right, okay. so um but it's just, there, there's so much that that overwhelms me about the film so here's the two things i'll talk about the acting is marvelous all around I don't necessarily think Michael Fassbender is a tremendous actor. I think he's very good. I think he has a lot of on-screen charisma. And when he has a good, uh, a good uh, part, like, and he just like, he can really sink his teeth into it. That's great. I don't think when I, when I heard that he was cast in the part, I remember just thinking like, mm, I bet somebody else could do a better job. <laughs> um, he's wonderful. Um, for reasons that I'll get into more in a moment. Uh, the supporting performances are all amazing. I do genuinely hope and expect Jeff Daniels get a, to get a supporting actor nomination. He deserves it. Seth Rogen makes a good argument for it too. Though. Yeah. Um, that's great. We'll be talking more about that in a couple of days. I'm sure. Um, Oh yeah. That's for off mic. So, uh, and they just, I, I can't even begin to like, I can't even begin to talk about why the film works so well as far as character dynamic and the choices that the actors make, the way Danny Boyle shoots it, specifically his use of close-up and, and his, his trusting of the actors to sort of carry the, the tone of the film. Uh, I find that fascinating. Um, but I think, and this will get to kind of the Michael Fassbender performance, but like my problem with most biopics is that is that it is either look how great this guy is, but we already knew that or look what an asshole this guy is. And now you don't care why he's good. <laughs> you know, um, whether it be that Gainsbourg film that I saw or, uh, pawn sacrifice, it's just, it's a very standard thing, which is just like, well, we already, it's like, well, we already know that this guy did a, a lot of great things. So let's show the other side and negate <laughs> anything that this person might've done. Um, this film manages to strike a tone where both are equally represented. 
and neither negates the other. And you can see that many of them, and the, you know, this is such an obvious thing to say, but I feel like it, very few movies actually capture it well, which is both the brilliance and the general assholery come from the same place, which is uncom- uh, a lack of compromise, which is the the tremendous. You know, we are recording on uh, a Mac on a, right. on a laptop. Uh, there are we both got our iPhone. Uh, there are a number of Apple products yeah. in this room, and the reason for that is because Steve Jobs was uncompromising in his vision just as uncompromising in his insistence that he is not that little girl's father. Oh, right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And so you, and what I love about it is that the brilliance doesn't excuse much less negate. It doesn't excuse how much of a jerk he is, but him being a jerk does not, uh, reduce his contribution to the world. It manages to capture both and it made me think about my own life. It made me think about how it is possible to be both of those at the same time, because I tend to feel like the things that I've done wrong in my life and the flaws negate whatever positive I might be and what I might contribute. And this film made me realize like it doesn't, but being a super awesome person doesn't give me uh, a get out of jail free card not that I'm a super awesome person, but like doing amazing things doesn't give you a get out of jail free card that excuses your behavior either. Like the film really like had an impact on me. It sounds like it spoke to you and then it makes me, it makes me excited to see it. I had gotten, I might be over overselling it by the way, but I had gotten to the place where like I'm an Aaron Sorkin fan. Uh, I think like half of that sentence. I was like, is that still true? I'm not sure that's still true. Yeah, Your facial expression was fun to see just now. Yeah. But I am a Danny Boyle fan. Yeah. Um, and I had gotten my, I had talked myself out of being excited for Steve Jobs, even though I would always be excited for a new Danny Boyle film. Yeah. Uh, but now I'm, I'm back into, into seeing it. I, I think I'm going to see it with, uh, with the wife. Uh, and, uh, we'll see how that goes. It, It'll be it fun. doesn't, I'll say this, like compared to the films that we think are quintessential Danny Boyle, it doesn't feel as much him as I would like it to be, but I will say that the first act of the film really does. Okay. Um, and I can understand why he makes some of the choices that he does, uh, as the film goes on to maybe not be so prominent in the choices that he makes visually. All right. Uh, my new favorite film of the year, Watch out. a film that I had been dying to check out since hearing so much of it, about it out of can. Uh, and that's Ho Shao Shen's the assassin. Ah, yes. Uh, which is, it is a martial arts movie about an assassin that is not false advertisement. It's although, martial arts, but it's Tai Chi. Without, <laughs> um, te- technically, it is what it, it's a it's a Chinese historical drama, martial arts, wuxia, assassin movie. Um, it has it has all those things. But if that's the movie you're going to see, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, because for an action movie, it is and for any movie, it is maybe the quietest movie I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. Um, it's so hushed and so uh, uh, persistent in that. Yeah, that it 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 becomes entrancing. And I think, you know, it's like Bellatar is saying, like, get to it. Right. There, well, yeah, there are movies like that, um, you know, in, in, some, in, in some ways when we watch movies, it, you know, it's a case by case basis, but we want the movie to sort of build, to progress. Right. You know, and I'm not saying this one 
doesn't, uh, but this is more about um, establishing a sort of motion, a sort of cadence, and just like lulling you into that, and it become it becomes beautiful. And it, it there is a story. This uh, it's not important actually what <laughs> yeah. the story is. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a you know, there's uh, she was. Um, uh, th- this girl was essentially uh, taken or given away from her family uh, to make the family stronger. And then she got taken in by this woman who trained her to be an assassin. And now she's being sent back to um, where she came from to kill her husband who, or her husband, her cousin mm-hmm. who is now uh, running this kingdom or whatever. Yeah. That's the, but that, that that's, that's the plot. Um, it's really not important to me. Yeah. Uh, it's it's more about what this movie does technically and visually. Uh, it's in one three three, or I think technically one three seven, except for one scene that is in one eight five, which is weird <laughs> because the the screening room t- had to have the one eight five mats, yeah. you know, like ready. Even though it's just one scene, and so the rest of the time you've got a one eight five screen up there with the one three three image in the center of it. Um, but that's you know that's just how how it goes, um, and. It also part uh, parts of the beginning are in black and white. Uh, it does really interesting things with the sound design in that often um, incidental noises like trees, leaves, you know, uh, rustling in the wind or someone, you know, returning his sword to its scabbard mm-hmm. are louder than the dialogue. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I have all these thoughts about it. I'm like with you with Steve Jobs. I still have another week, thankfully, before I have to write about it. Um, and sometimes when we do this movie journal, like, and I talk about the movies, I come to realize how I feel. I'm realizing now, like, no, I still need to think about this one more. Okay. Uh, like, it was an entrancing experience to me. Uh, it's beautiful to look at. Um, it has... It, you know, you talk about uh, you, you talk about Dan- Danny Boyle like toning down some of his flashiness. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, Ho Xiao Shen is not a flashy director, but he almost like he does things with with space and with like planes of space in this movie that are, on the one hand, so simple and basic, like film school fundamental things that he does mm-hmm. that are perfect. And while at the same time, there are some incredibly interesting and detailed and, and thoughtful things going on in in the frame as well. It, it just seems like it, it, it just seems like a perfectly realized film. Uh, and the action sequences in, it, sequences in it are actually good. It's not uh, there is uh, there is one that kind of feels like he's uh, screwing with you where she's fighting off a bunch of guys and then he cuts to a wide shot so that they're actually, he's actually on the other side of the tree line. So you're just kind of seeing like some arms and like some limbs and swords flashing about and you're hearing the fight, but you can't really see what's going on. That's but that's just one of them. Um, there's, there are, uh, good fight scenes in the movie and, uh, good performances. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I, I clearly still need some time to think about this one. Yeah. I mean, in your case, it's, it's just like, I can't find the words. I Me, mean, it's just like, I've got too many of them, <laughs> right. you know? Um, but that's, that, do you, I mean, do you find it's, uh, I find it harder to write about a movie that I love than a movie that I didn't like. Oh, well the, the hardest one is a movie that I have no feelings about whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but like 
the stuff I don't like, I know very concrete, concretely, like what I don't like, but like the stuff with the ones I love, it's just like, it gets to something's like, well, now I have to do like self analysis to get even close right. to knowing what yeah. to say. Um, but yeah, all very right. Exciting. So that's the assassin. Um, we both I, saw I our wait. favorite yeah, movie of yeah, the year I mean, so far. Maybe it'll be, uh, uh, you know, um, unseated is the word. I was Indeed. For. Yes. It's, uh, it's possible. We've got plenty of time left before we do our, we do our top tens, not at the end of December, but, uh, the week before the Oscars. Indeed. Uh, Long time listeners know that, but that's what we do. So we have a lot of time to catch up on the movies. Um, mm-hmm. anyway, uh, TV, you have a TV podcast. It's called survivor. No, it's called worth playing for. It's about yes. survivor. Yes. I uh, hosted with my wife, uh, Jen and, uh, the season is kicked off and, uh, it's, the third episode just aired. Uh, it's it's shaping up to be one of the best seasons of all time, and maybe the most strategic season uh, okay. so far. It's uh, it's really fascinating. But you can find that at Battleship Retention. Okay. Um, I also have a TV podcast, but uh, the the only two things I want to talk about: a um, couple of returning sitcoms. Uh, I don't really have much to say about Modern Family. Um, I'm not even caught up uh, on all the episodes that have aired, but Modern Family is back for its seventh season and its first time in first time since its first season, I guess. Not starting off as the Emmy winner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah, this is the first time. Yeah. Anyway, um, anyway, I don't know much. To say what about did Modern win? Family um, for comedy? Yeah, Veep. Veep. Oh, okay. Um, but. The other sitcom I want to talk about that's back is The Last Man on Earth. Okay. And I want to talk about how glad I am that I didn't abandon this show oh, uh, in the season one, mid-season one doldrums. Because two episodes in so far in season two is fantastic. Hmm. Um, it's really funny, but also still very character-based with a lot. You know, it, it has not forgotten that it has not forgotten the sadness or the darkness of the fact that, you know, there was always like the fear that like, this is a show that takes place after almost everyone on earth has died yeah. from a disease. Uh, and there was always a fear that it would just take that as its initial premise. And then it would just sort of settle into being a sitcom with whatever characters right. there are left. But this show has not forgotten yeah. how tragic it is. Um, and that these people have kind of accepted, uh, you know, they're, they're now accustomed to the fact that everyone they've ever known, is dead, yeah. but it still comes up sometimes. It's not like they're breaking down about it, but they're still, it, it, they're, the, the show isn't ignoring that. By the way, now that you've mentioned it, wouldn't it be super awesome to have a three camera, uh, studio audience, <laughs> uh, sitcom that took place after the apocalypse. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, that would be great. But, uh, yeah, so they're doing that. They're not forgetting, um, where they came from. And they're also, uh, unlike a lot of sitcoms, they are also they they are allowing their characters to grow. You know, there's mm-hmm. um, it's only because Last Man on Earth was a mid season replacement last year. It's only been a few months for us since mm-hmm. one ended, but uh, they established it's been six months in between season one and and season two within that world. And you get to there are recognizable ways immediately that you see these characters have changed oh, uh, in the six months in between, and that's that's fun to fun for them to play with uh i guess i gotta pick it up again yeah and they're still doing the thing um i've heard people complain about how the end of every episode is like a oh like a twist or a shock yeah i think they do it well most of the time and the yeah the end of the second episode is you're not going to see it coming uh or you it's one of it's the kind of twist that you're going to see coming a few seconds before it happens and that almost like makes it 
uh, like all the harder to take. Cause yeah. you're like, Oh my God, I know what's about to happen. <laughs> uh, so yeah, uh, I'm really glad that I stuck with last man on earth. It's good. Uh, it did occur to me. There is a TV show. This that happens I, have, I know every I'm time sorry. you tell me, well, cause we talk uh, listeners, we talk beforehand about what we don't spoil what we're going to talk about. We say we have yeah. this many movies and this many TV shows to talk about. And yeah. without fail, every time you think of another TV show. Well, the here's the thing is that I'm much more purposeful about watching movies than I am TV. Okay. TV. I am much more likely to watch while I am working, which means it doesn't necessarily stick with me. And also it has been a couple weeks since we've uh, done right. one of these. Uh, so I wa- I've watched the first two episodes of this season of South Park. Oh. And David, South Park is the show we need right now. Okay. And, appara- and I've been away for years. I haven't seen the last oh, yeah. few seasons. Me either. And, but I've, I've been reading up on, I've been reading like the AV Club's coverage of this season. Apparently something they've been doing the last few seasons is uh, a season-long arc. Okay. Where each episode definitely is its own thing, but it's it's exploring something all season long. First off, that sounds amazing, and if they do it like they're doing it now, I'm fascinated. Because what they're really attacking right now is the idea of outrage culture, mm-hmm. which South Park, more than maybe any other show, can do that well. Um But the way they're doing it, because the first the first episode is it's kind of about Caitlyn Jenner, but it's not necessarily about her specifically. It's about uh, how we are all expected to say very specific things about her. And if you don't, <laughs> you are a, mo- a horrible monster and that sort of thing. And so there's a, and so like there's a new like PC principal uh, who, it, who is, who wears like Oakley's and is like a big buff. He's basically a jock, but he's super PC. <laughs> so he like bullies people about not being PC, which is like, well, that's kind of obvious. And, and it does feel, and even the AV club said like, well, eh, this is kind of an obvious joke. And you know, what are they going to do with it? Episode two comes along. And even the AV club writer said like, I was fooled. <laughs> I didn't know what they were doing. I was short sighted. Episode two, Donald Trump comes along or a Donald Trump type character. Uh-huh. And what they say is just like, Hey, you hate Donald Trump. Guess why he's doing well? Because he's a straight talker in a, in a society or a culture where we're where it it's uh, we're constantly told like no you can't say that the guy who says don't tell me what I can't say suddenly he seems very exciting even though he's horrible he's a <laughs> horrible person and so I, like I haven't watched uh, episode three yet I don't know if it's come out yet I think it has but I'm excited to see the different elements of the current culture in which we live explored. Because I feel like every episode is going to be a different element that builds on the last one. And I'm very excited to see it. That does sound enticing. Yeah. Uh, I might have to, uh, I don't know, spend my a couple of lunch breaks uh, at work it's, catching up. <laughs> I, I'd love to know what you think of it. All right. Um, we're done. <laughs>